following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians 1, 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to tell you a story. In fifth or sixth grade, I was with some friends. Um, we were we were at a high school basketball game, and this is really, you go to a high school basketball game as a fifth or sixth grader, you're, it's really, you're not there for the basketball thing, you're there to socialize, right? Hang out with your friends, hit up the concession stand, do that thing. So I'm standing in the doorway, the basketball game is live, so I'm standing there in the doorway, waiting for a dead ball to happen so I can make my way across the bleachers all the way down to the student section where the cool kids hang out. Which, you know, that's the nice thing about the basketball games is like anybody can be in the cool kid section, right? So I'm standing there waiting. I'm talking to one of my buddies in the doorway. Wasn't paying attention to the game. Um, and, and this girl who's standing next to me, she says, look out. And I look at her and I look at the game. And before I know it, there's this orb of leather coming straight from my face. Now, just imagine for a moment. Chubby Sam, I mean, like shrunk down, chubby Sam. If you just compress me and put worse glasses on my face, this little fifth, sixth grader standing there gets plowed. I mean, this dude shucked it, threw it hard, hit me right in the face, glasses broke. I'm on my back wondering what in the world just happened because that went so fast. You know, and then all of a sudden I realized that that there, there are two things that I remember from this. First of all, my buddy leaned over to me and said, dude, you can't cry. Your crush is watching you. And I was like... Thanks, guy. <laughs> and two, after that, after I'm like, people are helping me up, they start asking me questions as if I'm some sort of trauma victim. And you know, the, you know like somebody gets hit in the head, what are the, the common questions you ask, right? How many fingers am I holding up? What's your name? Do you know where you're at, right? And so they're asking me these questions. And I'm just like, I'm a little disoriented, to be honest. You know, I can't find my glasses. I'm trying not to cry because my crush is right there. You know, and so it's like I, I got all the, just disoriented in this moment. And I don't know, maybe you felt like that at some point in your life, you're just a little bit disoriented, put on your back, you're in a place where it's like, I think I know where I am, I think I, I, think I know who I am, but you just feel like this moment of confusion. And I think, I think this is kind of like par for the course in the Christian life, that there's just a lot of confusion that surrounds us. There's a lot of, there's a lot of feeling disoriented with how things kind of play out and, and cultural Christianity and living in a culture and an American culture and figure out all these things. There's this just a disorienting nature that we interact with. And the book of Colossians opens with this subtle reminder of sort of the foundational truth, the foundational realities of, of one, who we are and where we are. Because just like the Colossians, we live in this disorienting world. Like, we know what it feels like to take a ball to the face, even if it's metaphorical, right? And as Christians, we can forget our identity, and we can forget our locale. And it's, it's one of these things that Siri or a Google search or a GPS can't really help you with. 
But Colossians, Colossians pinpoints, it really answers the questions. It pinpoints who we are and where we are as Christians amidst the chaos of our culture and the world and the city. And so that's kind of what we're going to go today. Like, who are you? Where are you? But before we dive in, as we open up a new book, what I want to do is set up the book for you so you can kind of understand where the author's coming from, the context in which he's writing. So, and this is really important. Anytime you approach the, the Bible, is to keep in mind the original audience and its context. Otherwise, we're going to read the Bible wrong. Because here's the deal. The Bible was written for you, for your benefit, but it wasn't written to you. There are no books of the Bible that open up, Dear Samuel, here's what you need to know how to make it through life. Actually, there's First and Second Samuel, so uh, <laughs> suckers. No, just kidding. Uh, but even that book, what am I going to learn, right? King David, well, I didn't have anything to do with King David. But so, so there's this reality that, that, that it's not written to us. It's not written to us in our exact moment in time, in our context, but it is written for us. And so as we understand the original audience, the context in which they find themselves, then we can start to make sense of what is the true meaning of this text? What is the author really getting at? And so that's what we're going to do. And I'm, I'm hoping to kind of breeze through this here. There's a lot of stuff that I want to fill you in on because it's all really important. It's all setting the stage for what's going to be communicated. And one of the first things that we have to realize is that the book of Colossians um, falls under the category of, of an epistle or, or, or a letter. Um, now, if you break down in maybe the most basic way uh, the different genres that we find in the New Testament, which is, you know, genre like music, different kind of categories of literature, um, there are two primary genres that we see in the New Testament. First of all, there's like a historical narrative, which is a, I'm going to use that as a big umbrella for like the Gospels, which go through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and talk about his miracles, and the works, and his teaching, um, and talk about that. Acts, the book of Acts serves as this meta-narrative of what, what goes on after Jesus ascends to heaven and commissions his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that follows you know, a couple of guys, mostly the apostles, and that's why it's called Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Those guys like Paul and Peter and James and what's going on in their lives as they're making disciples and planting churches. And so that's sort of like the, the, the historical narrative piece. And then we get into what is primarily, and even the book of Revelation in some sense fits into this, even though it's got its own category, uh, is this epistle, this letter, where things kind of move from the macro narrative into the micro, where things sort of get personal and intimate. And and so we kind of see this as the book opens up, as far as the letter form goes, as far as back in the first century, where the author uh, identifies himself right away of like, or herself, uh, of who's writing and who they're writing to. And so you look at it right away, we can tell, okay, it says Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and Timothy to the saints at Colossus. Okay, so, okay, there we go. It's a letter. And verse one says that it's being written by the apostle Paul and Timothy. And, and you know, it, what we believe here is, is not, this isn't just written by the intellect of men. This isn't just some smart guy sitting down to write out some ideas he had. He's under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is communicating through him and through his words as if it's words directly coming from God to the recipients. 
And, and though Paul, at the end, he tells us that there's this section in the closing where he writes in his own hand, it's believed that Timothy is the one who's actually functioning as a scribe. As Paul is dictating, Timothy is writing down what he's saying. And so the question is, like, okay, we got Paul, we got Timothy. The question is, who are these guys? What makes them credible? Why should we listen to them? Now, if you look at verse 1, it tells us right away, Paul just, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't waste words. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, in the New Testament, in the first century, there, there, there are, there's, there's a special category of teachers, of preachers, of church planters who were directly called by Jesus. Okay, we, we know this, the 12 disciples, right? You read through the Gospels, you see Jesus calling to himself these 12 disciples who spent those three years as Jesus was doing ministry and they were navigating through uh, the, wherever they would go together. Jesus was instilling in them teachings that later on would be recalled and they'd remember and they'd share and write down these Gospels. But there was also this other man who didn't necessarily, well, first of all, he wasn't called by Jesus to be a disciple in that sense where he spent time with Jesus, but he was called by Jesus to be an apostle, right? The apostle Paul, if you know the story in Acts, he used to be called Saul. He was a persecutor of the church. God blinded him, knocked him off his horse, said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He's like, I'm going to turn you into a disciple maker and a church planner. He's like, what? And then, you know, it all unfolded from there where God literally, there were scales on his eyes. God opened his eyes. And at once, Saul became Paul. Paul was this guy that God just, what a gift to the church, honestly, because most of our New Testament is written by Paul. And God called Paul, and he says that he was one who was untimely born as an apostle. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. He's like, I, I wasn't with Jesus like the other apostles, but Jesus personally showed up and called me to this ministry. And so what, what Paul is doing here is, is asserting, he's telling us that he has a unique authority that comes directly from Jesus to preach and to plant and to instruct people in the way of Christ and his apostles. And in this letter, by starting off by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, he is saying, he's appealing to this apostolic authority. And so Paul, you know, we see who Paul is. Now, who's this Timothy guy? Uh, Timothy is one of Paul's most cherished friends. He was his right-hand man. He was, he was probably a generation younger um, and so he was functioning as sort of a protege. He'd follow Paul around. You can follow, you follow him through the book of Acts. You see Paul and Timothy are together, and then Paul tells Timothy to hang out in Ephesus and do some stuff. And so, so Timothy is really this understudy who's really the guy that Paul is intending to hand the baton of gospel ministry to when Paul is ready to resign. You know, not, not like resign in the sense of like, I'm gonna go on vacation now because that, that wasn't something that crossed Paul's mind. He was like, I'm, for the long haul, I'm doing ministry you know, even if I'm in a jail cell. And so Paul's like, you know, when Jesus takes me home, I'm gonna hand this baton to Timothy. And so there's this close bond that Paul and Timothy have. He says he's a dear brother of, of Paul. Um, and at the time of writing this letter, um, Paul and Timothy, by, you know, um, association here, are actually sitting in a jail cell. They're in prison um, for preaching the gospel, now, that's something that we got to be thankful for here. It's like, I stand here under no threat 
of legal action. Uh, I can present to you the word of God without fear of the police being outside when I go to my car. And, but, but that was not a luxury that the Apostle Paul had. That there were people who wanted him dead for sharing the message of God, the good news that God had sent his son to save sinners. And so Paul, in this real sense, really experienced the afflictions of Jesus. And he talks about his suffering. But here's one example of this in just the persecution. The, 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 what he had to endure to get that message out. And sometimes it was sitting in a jail cell. Now, we don't have an exact location of Paul uh, or a time frame because Paul was imprisoned so often. Like, the book of Acts will capture some of these moments where he's sitting in a jail cell, but there's a lot of these times where, you know, I don't know, he just spent a night or two in jail, and it's just kind of like the normal thing. It's like its own little hotel or something. But, but, but Paul... You know, this is like, this is kind of par for the course. If I'm doing ministry, I know I'm going to be persecuted. I know I'm going to not be a fan favorite of some of the people that are around me. But he kept going. And most scholars say that, that Paul is either writing from a jail cell um, in the city of Ephesus or in the city of Rome. It's really hard to pin down. Um, but, but given these two locations, this kind of dates the letter somewhere around 52 to 62 AD. So just sort of a, a ballpark idea. This is early first century And what Paul is doing is he's writing to a specific audience. He's not just writing this general letter and, you know, throwing it to the wind and whoever gets it, gets it. Uh, No, no, he's writing to Christians specifically, people who have put their faith in Jesus, who are walking with Jesus, trusted in Jesus. He's writing to Christians in this city of Colossae. Now, the city of Colossae isn't around anymore, um, and, and an earthquake destroyed it. Um, they didn't find it a city worth rebuilding, um, and now it, it, it's sort of in a place somewhere in modern-day Turkey. Um, and the reason they didn't find it worthy of rebuilding was because, at, at one point, this was really a bustling met, uh, metropolis. Like, it, this was a... a it was a really important city because a highway went right through it, and because of that, there was a lot of commerce, there was a lot of cultural, uh, um, different cultures, different ideas of religion. There's a, it's just one big melting pot. But, but what happened was the highway got moved up about 12 miles, and so it no longer passed through the city of Colossae, but it went through these other towns that neighbored it, which became these bustling cities that upstaged Colossae. Um, and yet, though, though, though that's, that highway was no longer there, Colossae maintained this sense of diversity. Like, there, there are a lot of different um, cultures and, and, and nationalities represented in this city. Um, it, it was a religious melting pot. There are a lot of different ideas. Uh, um, and, and though the city is relatively small, and, and, and what is probably, we can safely say, is an insignificant place, because the Apostle Paul, like nowhere in Scripture does it say he even stepped foot in the city. Like he, he was pretty focused on these cities that were hubs that could function. And, you know, but, but here Paul is writing this small, kind of like outdated, seemingly insignificant city and, and presenting to them what they need most as a church. But the question now is, if Paul's never stepped foot in the city of Colossae, like, what's his connection? Like, how does he even know this church exists? And and, and here's a really neat thing. Um, We'll see this later on as we sort of move through here, but I'll I'll give you a little preview. Um, As Paul was preaching on one of his missionary journeys, probably his first missionary journey to the city of Colossae, he was preaching the gospel. 
Um, kind of like we saw this pattern last week in Acts chapter 2 where the word of God was preached. This, this announcement of the good news was made. The spirit worked in a certain way to incline people's hearts toward that message so they would receive it. And, and in that, the Lord would bring about repentance where people would turn from their old sinful ways and then turn to follow Jesus. And in following Jesus, it would lead them into this new life. And we see the same pattern unfold because there as Paul is preaching to Ephesus, this guy named Epiphras hears the gospel message. God changes his heart so he can receive it. He repents of his sin and now is living a life for Jesus. And he's so fired up that he goes home to his city of Colossus and he starts telling other people about Jesus like a fool. Like, you know, he became a fool for Christ. And he tells people about Jesus, and guess what happens? Other people get saved. Other people have this conversion experience where they receive the gospel. And they say, man, I want to live for Jesus now because I see that he died for me. Not only did he die for me, he lived for me. He lived and died for me, so I want to live for him. And so people have this experience where they're like, okay, all right, I'm ready to follow Jesus now. And before you know it, a church is planted. And that's how this church in Colossus came about. So there's this sense where... um, Paul is sort of like the, the grandfather of the Coloss, Colossian church. So, so Epiphras had this influence of Paul to do this church, and, and, and guess what? It's a young church. Um, it's facing its challenges, you know, just like every church faces. Um, you know, the church is about three or four years old, um, which would mean that everybody in the room is basically, I mean, like, to, to some extent, like, a, a relatively new believer, um, and, and that would probably mean that there's not a lot of maturity among its leaders, and when there's a, a lack of maturity in the church, what's bound to happen is, like, all kinds of issues just start, it's like, you know, the stuff hits a fan. Things are starting to go haywire, and, and Epiphras is realizing this, and, and he looks at the church, and he's like, yeah, things aren't there's things not right here. I can feel that. And so he goes to Paul and, and visits him in prison and said, hey, here's what's going on. Here's what we're experiencing. Here's what our church is like right now. Can you shed some light on this? So he's going to Paul to get some counsel about how to address these issues that they're facing. And, and you know, Paul's obviously tied up if he's in jail. He can't really like, well, I'll be back in a couple weeks, go to Colossae, come back to jail. So he does the next best thing. He writes this letter. He writes this letter, uh, and it's really a sincere letter. I mean, we can see that as we move through um, next week into the next verse, but a a sincere, heartfelt letter for these Christians. Um, And and really what, what Paul is doing is he's speaking to their biggest threat. And and if you just boil it down here, if we just distill the book of Colossians for a moment, what's really under attack is the Christian belief and practice that they've been instructed in. So Epiphras, he came back, he's got this gospel message, but with the gospel message comes Christian conduct, how we live in response to that message. And there are things that are being twisted. People are trying to change the doctrine. People are trying to change the message. People are trying to convince people to live in a different way that's contrary to the way of Jesus. And so part of this is, 
kind of brought about because this, this is a spiritual melting pot. The city, there's a lot going on. There's people with different views. And so you see this really two sides, two competing sides that are pulling the church back and forth. And, and the first side is this like spiritual pagan side. And, and I mean that in like, uh, like down the street there's a lady that like sells rocks and stuff, you know, like and she'll read your poem. Like that sort of pagan spiritual mentality. And now in, in this in this space, in this time, um, this pagan belief was very, very popular. Like people living in Colossae had this idea that they adopted from the Greeks and it kind of spread throughout, is that there are multiple gods. And we, based on what we're looking for, we worship this god or that god or that god or this god. And so they're polytheistic. And so when Jesus, this message of Jesus, who, who says that he is the God-man, the one that God sent to rescue his people, they say, oh, yeah, just add him to the collection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll worship him alongside this God and this God and this God. And so there's this competing spiritual pagan view. But, but on the other side, there's this religious competing idea that comes from um, the, you might say the Jewish Christians or um, Jews who are dabbling in Christianity or even just like Jews, you know. There, there were a lot of Jews that rejected the gospel message. And so they were like, well, this gospel message or this idea about Jesus is just really a stepping stone to get you to, to Judaism. And so they, they were placing upon people this extra law and the sense of that like they needed to oblige um, these moral, well, not just moral, but these ceremonial um, and religious practices in order for them to be viewed as right with God. And so you can see, if you understand the gospel, there are two opposing forces that are working against the true gospel, which is that we are saved by grace. It's by Christ alone that we are saved and brought into God's family. And, and God is the God. That's one God and three persons, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If you want to learn about that, you can go back and listen to our uh, sermon series in the Apostles' Creed um, where we unpack that. But, but here we see these two opposing forces trying to infiltrate Christianity and modify the church into something that is unrecognizable from what it was intended to be. It's like if you have water, right? I got water here. You got water and say, okay, this is the church. This is Jesus and his teachings and the conduct of Christianity. And if we just take a little bit of a Kool-Aid, right, drop it in there, like no, no longer would this be water, right? They're adding to the teachings. They're adding to this conduct, right? And in doing so, Christianity loses its uniqueness, its distinctness. Same thing if you add lemons or sugar, right? The water becomes a new thing, right? And the same is true of Christianity. If you add anything to what Jesus teaches, anything to what the scriptures say in, 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 like a, in a way that is tethered to salvation. Now, there are things that we can say, you know, I don't know. This is what it looks like scripture teaches. Um, I'm unsure about this. We can have tertiary disagreements about things among the body that shouldn't separate us. But we can have disagreements because there are places where Scripture doesn't clearly articulate everything we might want to know. But when it comes to salvation, God has not messed up. God has not spared any words. God has not left anything about, out about what it means to be saved. And that's, that's sort of what these spiritual pagan people and the religious and Jewish people are trying to add. They're trying to add extra things. And when you do that, Christianity is no longer true orthodox Christianity. 
It becomes some sort of hybrid faith, some sort of hybrid Christianity, some sort of hybrid religion, or you can even say like a designer religion, right? That's, you know, everybody likes to customize things. So why not, why can, why not customize uh, our own religion to fit our own views? Now, there's a lot of trouble in that. Because when you start to get, when you start making God comply to your own ideas, you make God very small. And so, what we, as, what we do as Christians is we humble ourselves before the Lord. We humble ourselves before his scripture. And we receive what he has. And there are some things that are going to be confusing to us. There are going to be some things that mean, maybe on this side of eternity, I don't know what that means. But God will reveal what we need to know. That was a side thing. Um, that wasn't in my notes. So let me back up. You add anything to Christianity, it becomes a designer religion. It's not true Christianity. Now, Paul, in his apostolic authority, writes so that they would hear, like, that, like they would hear from God to reject the culture's negative influence. He's writing to encourage them to be faithful to true, to orthodox Christian belief and conduct in this very confusing world so that they would follow Jesus, that they would grow and mature in Christ, and they would resist the compromise that culture is pressing on them. They would resist the tug. And if you think about it, it's really not an isolated thing because even at the end of the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul says, hey, by the way, you should pass this letter on to the people at Laodicea. That's one of the cities that sort of upstaged them because they need to hear the same exact thing too. And you know what? At the end of that, Paul might as well would have, should have said, uh, why don't you go ahead and pass this on to Sacred City Moline? Because they're going to need to hear some of this, right? And so that's where we're at today. And, and I want to show you, and I hope you can see, as, as we're hearing about the city of Colossus, as we're hearing about some of the conflict that they're working through, we can see that this book is relevant to us. There are a lot of commonalities here. We're a young church. We just celebrated our third anniversary last week. We're li- we live in a smaller city, one that if you compare to some of the bigger cities around us, you could say, which I wouldn't want to say because I love my city, that's uh, a little bit insignificant in some sense. Um, we are put in this place that, that is a, a melting pot culturally, religiously, um, all kinds of different ideas and views that circulate in our city. And so there's a sense specifically when it comes to our spiritual, um, uh, this spiritual melting pot, we're sort of sandwiched between a religious view, which I, I don't know, religion doesn't seem to go anywhere, this cold religion that we want to speak of, not the true religion that Jesus speaks of, um, and, and, and there's a secularized where people are moving away from Jesus and, and there are people, they're moving away from Jesus in clear, pretty obvious ways and there's other ways where people on the other side uh, are, are moving further away from Jesus because they're relying on their good deeds and their good works and the things that they think are going to get them saved. So there's this tension that we live in. There's a need for maturity. I, I don't know a church that doesn't have a need for maturity. We're, we're facing obvious and subtle negative influences, and there's this need just as much as ever for the church to be faithful. Now, the reality is that Christian faith and conduct has always been under attack. There's never been a moment in history throughout the globe where it's like, Christians are cool. There's been people all over the place that like, I hate that person because of their message. I hate that person because of what they stand for. And Paul in prison is a perfect example of that. 
So there's nothing new to the reality that our Christian faith and conduct is under attack in this 21st century world. But now this hybrid and designer Christianity, this this fake knockoff type of Christian faith changes as the cultural trends change. So in in a big umbrella sense, yeah, it's like um, the pagan and the religious. But if you want to break it down, we can see how um, a, a lot of a lot of churches, and they're not just isolating our city, but really through North America and what North America and the West is exporting into different places, has a broken understanding of the gospel. They have this, it's become this Jesus plus religion. It's like Jesus plus politics. Now, the only way you're going to fit in this church is if you vote this way. Right? You stand for these political things. And if you do that, then you're kind of part of the crowd. It has something to do with your standing, your identity, all this stuff. It's Jesus plus moralism. Jesus plus heaping up good works to make yourself look good. Jesus plus being a social justice warrior. Now, Christian faith calls for us to step in toward justice. Right? It is sinful for us to see injustice happening and not do anything about it. But there's a difference between being for justice and being a social justice warrior. There's some places where you see our culture stepping up, fighting hard for things that are, uh, you know, that would be labeled as human rights. There are things that people are standing up for that are, are labeled as really important in our culture's eyes. That really, if a church becomes about those things, we lose, we lose our purpose. We lose the main focus. And I think in the Midwest, especially, it becomes this religion of Jesus plus family values. Like, actually, I think it sometimes it gets flipped around, like family values. Like, my family plus Jesus, I'm cool with Jesus, as long as he doesn't get in the way with family time. Or it might be a blue-collar work ethic. Jesus plus working hard, showing your grit, showing that you're a good old Midwestern boy or girl, you know? Jesus plus my own individual freedom. Well, okay, Jesus set me free, so I'm free indeed, right? Well, yeah, but you were freed to be under Christ to listen to him, or even, you know, things that we get caught up with as a society, Jesus plus academics, like, you know, to prove that you've really been saved, you've got to articulate, you know, the five points of Calvinism, you know, whatever it would be, you know, that's not it, That's, that's not the true Christian faith. Now, there are things in there, like, Jesus teaches us how to love our families well. Jesus teaches us that it's good to be a learner. It's good to study. It's good for these things. That we do have freedom. That we do even have Christian liberty in politics. But those are not connected in a sort of intrinsic way to the gospel of Jesus. And so all of these hybrid versions of Christianity, all of these hybrid, ver- hybrid religions are just defunct. They're not real Christianity. And yet... American Christianity often looks more like these versions of Christianity than true Christianity. So this is why it can be so disoriented, be so disoriented to be a Christian. Because there are all these different ideas, and even in the church, man, pulling us different directions. What do we believe? What, do we, what bandwagon do we jump on? What are we about? And so it can be like, what, what, what's going on? It's like you get hit in the basketball face, or hit in the... Basketball face. Get in the, hit in the face with a basketball, right? 
And so what Paul is doing here as we move back into the actual teaching is he's setting out in this letter to clear things up. And where he starts is with a reset. He's going to reset their identity. And maybe not a reset, but, but a reminder. Paul's really good at reminding us. He realizes how much we forget. He's going to reset their identity and their reality of where you are. So the first thing he does to clear up the confusion about who and where Christians specifically, because remember, he's writing to Christians. First thing he does is go to who you are and where you are. Now look, look at verse 2 with me. Actually, I'm going to say the whole thing. Actually, no, it's verse 2. To the saints, so Paul introduces himself, and he says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossus. Now, you'll notice here, he, he doesn't just say to the church in Coloss. He, he doesn't just say to the Christians who are in the area of Coloss. No, he, he gives them a title. He gives them an identity. He reasserts their identity. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers or sisters. And in doing so, he's pointing to who they really are. Now, if you've been tracking with me with the context of like the struggles of the church of Coloss, and you hear that they're dabbling, there's this tension, you know, and, and it's like, you know people have given into the temptation. You know people at the church are leaning this way or that way, and there's arguments going on. You, I can guarantee it. And when you hear those titles, what you think of is this really holy and pious, just a really godly person. You might even think like some sort of spiritual elite. Right, to the saints. Ooh, fancy. But when we know the reason for this letter, like this stuff doesn't line up. How can he call them saints and faithful brothers when they're struggling with basic beliefs of Christianity and conduct? Like, did the standard of holiness drop or something, right? No, right? If that happens, God is compromised because God himself is a standard for holiness. So how is it that Paul can call these hooligans saints and faithful brothers and sisters? Well, like how is it that he can give them that title and actually mean it? It's because in verse two it says, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters, in Christ. See, Paul is doing something that he loves to do throughout all of his letters. He says, hey, if you believe in Jesus, you are in Christ. That means your identity is not based on you and what you have done or not done or you and your own struggles, which might define you, or you and your career, which you might look to to define you, or you and your relationships, which you might look to to define you. No, 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 no. Your identity is in Christ. Now, this is one of Paul's favorite phrases, this in Christ. It only, it's only happens twice in this letter, but I mean, if you read through the New Testament, you see it over and over and over again. It's so sweet. It's one of those phrases that it's easy to read past. It's easy to look at it as like some sort of Bible-y language and just sort of zip right past it. But when you understand 
When you really grasp what it entails to be in Christ, there's no way that your eyes don't get caught up and it just serves as a reminder of your salvation, of, of really what, what is the gospel in two words. And here's what it means to be in Christ in just sort of a, a flyover way. It mean, to be in Christ means for Christians who have their faith in Jesus, we aren't defined by ourselves. We aren't defined by what we've done. We are defined by who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And what we see here, what, what, what really that means is that, that Jesus, Colossians works its way to this, Jesus took our unrighteousness, right? Like if, I, if the opposite of saying is a hooligan, Jesus took on our hooligan nature for us. He took on our unfaithfulness for us. He took on our version of defunct Christianity for us that would have led us nowhere but hell. And guess what? Jesus takes those things and he nails it to the cross. He says your sins are forgiven. Now this is really important because when you say in Christ, a lot of people think, oh, Jesus Christ. Christ is his last name. No, no, that's no, no. Christ is a title for Jesus. And we've, we've gone over this in the Apostles' Creed too. This is great. I've got all kinds of context just to pull up. But in Christ, he's talking about this Christ figure has is, is been a, a, a promised deliverer, the promised Messiah who had come into this world to, to free people from the domain of sin, from being captives of sin, forgive their sin, and bring them into a new place, a better place. And so this is what we're doing. We're recognizing Jesus is this person that's been promised throughout all of the Old Testament that would come and deliver God's people. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah who saves us from our sin. And not only does he take our sin away from us, but here, I love it. Man, he's a giver. He takes away our sin, and he gives us his perfect righteousness. He credits us, the unfaithful, with his perfect faithfulness to the Father. And so this is what it means to be in Christ. What Jesus is, you are too. Come on. What Jesus is, you are too. This is why Paul can say, look at him in the face or you know, through the lens of the letter and say, you are saints. You are faithful brothers and sisters, even though their actions might not line up with it. The reality, the core identity, their core sense of who they are is in Christ. And if your faith is in Christ, the same is true for you. Now, there's not one person in this room that's not a screw up. It's like newsflash. Hey, there's not a single person in this room that's not a screw up, but if you are in Christ, that doesn't define you. Nor is it up to you to try to tip the scales and prove yourself to God and say, look, look what I've done. Jesus already did that. And I think a lot of Christians get tripped up here. Because, you know, I, I hear this conversation a lot. You know, are you a Christian? And somebody's like, oh, yeah, well, I'm trying. Well, like, what does that mean? Like, what do, you, what do you mean you're trying to be a Christian? 
Like, if you're saying, I'm trying to be a Christian, you don't get it. You don't understand the gospel. You don't understand this identity has been imputed upon you. There's no trying. Jesus did it. The work is finished. He seated at the right hand of the Father. It just shows us, like, this idea of I'm trying. I'm trying to get my life to, I'm trying to, I'm trying shows that you're not functionally. Now, you might be, in the salvific sense in Christ, you trust in Jesus, but from a functional perspective where we're actually living out our faith, so that our faith goes from faith and belief to conduct, it might mean that you're not functionally believing you're in Christ. Now, here's a quote that I want to share from you. Um, It's from a book I read a couple years back, maybe one of the best books that I've read in the last couple years. It's in the bookstore. It's called Union with Christ. I love this book. I've come back to this book time and time again. And what Wilburn, uh, Rankin Wilborn says is, when I base my Christian life on my Christian experience, I become locked in the labyrinth of my own performance. I am only as sure of God as my current emotions and obedience allow. My eyes are fixed on myself. The gospel, the good news, is the way the Holy Spirit turns our eyes away from ourselves and in onto Christ. The gospel brings you into union with Christ. It places you in Christ. And Christ enters you. He says, Christ enters your heart and gives you faith. By that faith, you receive Christ and all his fullness Holy smokes, faith fixes your eyes on Christ and rests in him. That's what it means to be in Christ. And I know that there's probably somebody in here today who isn't in Christ yet, right? You can't say, you know, I'm dabbling around the idea of faith, or maybe you're completely opposed to Christianity. So I know that those people are likely to be in this room. And I want to tell you, like, you need to be in Christ. Like, that's, that's your only hope. Because when you're in Christ, you can finally rest from having to create your own identity, from having to strive and chase and, and pursue what you think you ought to be to make somebody happy. But when you're in Christ, that identity is credited to you. So when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your mess-ups. He doesn't see your failures. He doesn't see your inadequacies. What he sees is Jesus, his perfect righteousness given to you. And listen, when when Paul sort of wraps up his greeting um, to the Colossians, he, he extends God's grace and peace. And listen, if you're in this room today and you're not yet a Christian, I want you to know that God is extending the same grace and peace to you. But he's not withholding it. He's not making you dance for it. He, he wants to give it to you. And if you're ready to receive it, receive it, take it. Take it all day long and tell somebody about it. But if you're not ready to receive right now, you're still asking questions, then, then keep this in mind. From what, this, Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 7. He says, ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open. He, he's, he's applauding your curiosity. 
And it's an invitation toward faith. Now, you might not be ready to say, boom, I believe. But it's an invitation toward faith. And I pray that you would take it. As I wrap up here, I just want you to know, like, the question of where are we? You know, like, if I asked you, where are the people that Paul's writing to right now? What would you say? Talk to me, people. Where, where are they? In Coloss, golly, you guys are a bunch of white folk. Yeah, you'd say they're in Colossae. Right? You go, to the, you go to their like geographical location, right? And there's a sense where, yeah, that's true. But that's only partially true. Like, where are they? To the saints and the faithful brothers at Coloss, I'm switching some words around here, who are in Christ. Now, this not only has some like just identity implications, but this blows up everything. This takes us from ground zero to a 30,000-foot view real fast. Because what it's saying is that we have this dual location. Yeah, we're on earth, but we are also with Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father. Like, do you realize that in this spiritual sense, if your faith is in Christ, you are seated with Jesus in the heavenly places? And there's so many implications of this, but I only have time for one as I close. But this is what it means in, like, the most profound sense that we are raised with Jesus. As he was crucified, died, and buried, God raised him from the dead. He didn't stay down. He wasn't the deliverer who just like was a martyr. You know, that, that's the thing that sets Jesus apart from anybody else who's a Christian or any other, any other religious figure who dies for what they stand. Jesus isn't a martyr. Jesus is a living and reigning king. Oof. So Jesus is seated on his throne in heaven. And because we are in Christ, it means that we have been spiritually raised with him. This means that by his victory, we have triumphed, triumphed over the temptations of this world. Now, it's a fight still. There's this ongoing reality. It's like the already but not yet. We've already triumphed. But here in this world, we have to fight. We have to set our mind on the things that are above where Christ is. But he has triumphed for this, and it's by God's grace that we are proven to be God's true people. That we are, listen to this, If you are in Christ, you are secure forever. Your identity won't change, no matter who tries to prescribe you a new one or what you try to adopt on your own. Your identity is in Christ, a child of God. And you are forever seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And listen, here's an implication that you should go home with right now. Because our identity is secure, we don't have to fear what people think of us. We don't. If God says this is who you are, that's who you are. You don't have to fear what man thinks. And two, if we're seated with God in the heavenly places, like nothing can touch you that God doesn't bring. Like if God is for you, who can be against you? And so here's like the real life, rubber meets the road implication of this. If we don't have to fear what man thinks of us and we are secure in Christ in the heavenly places, guess what? 
That means we can engage with the culture knowing that we're in Christ. Because the culture isn't just this, I mean, there, there are principalities that are working and operating the culture, right? Uh, this takes us back to the book of Revelation, where, where there are things that are moving that we don't understand. There, there's spiritual warfare happening underneath the culture, but in the culture, there are people who are searching for an identity, people who are searching for security, people who are searching for a new life. And so what do we do? We engage not just the culture, but the people of the culture. We live as the missionaries God made us to be, right? Last week, I I put this out there that my prayer and our hope, and I think this is where God is leading us in 2020, is to double by discipleship. And so that means we don't have to be cowards. We can go about our, our lives in our cities, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, with the mentality of I am here to share Jesus with this person. I am here to make a disciple. I am here to live in mission. And and here, when we are operating within this belief, Christian belief that we are missionaries, servants, learners, family, right? The, The identities that we adopted here at Sacred City to articulate what we are then we don't have to worry about losing that. We can stand in the grace and the peace of God and be a light to our city. Let's do it. Let's get after it. Father, man, we thank you just even for the the riches of these two verses, which might seem insignificant. But God, you speak to your people. You have a word for us, God, and, and I pray that we would not harden our hearts to that word, but we would receive it with hearts full of faith, that we would know our identity is in you, that we would know our locale is seated with you in Christ, while also right here in the city of Moline, that you are not done with this city, that that you still have sheep in this city that, that we are to pursue, and that you are pursuing. And God, I pray that those people will be brought into your flock, God, and that our church would be faithful in what you call us to in our belief and in our conduct. And ultimately, God, we, we thank you for Christ, who even in this meal demonstrates his faithfulness. That, that, that night in the garden, he didn't say, you know, change of plans, I'm gonna do it my way. He said, Father, your will be done. If this is what's necessary to save my people from their sins, I'll do it. And following the pattern of Christ, God, would you help us to live this sort of life that says, God, whatever you say, I'll do it. And would this meal help us, strengthen us, encourage us to do so? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.